Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week it gets messy. Messy in a good way, obviously. The kind of messy you get from gathering three friends together who haven't seen each other in a while and then asking them questions about scary stuff. To explain, we've gone a bit rogue this week. Not one guest, but three. John Taff, Livia Llewellyn and Josh Malaman, to be precise. They're here to talk about their respective roles in a new anthology, Dark Stars, New Tales of Darkest Horror. It's a benchmark spook show. It's an attempt to set the tone for where we are in our collective horror moment. There's no governing theme to the anthology. It's just darkness, depravity and delight. John is the editor. Livia and Josh are contributors, alongside nine other names from the vanguard of horror fiction. So, as you can imagine, this is a fun one. It feels a little bit like a high school reunion, but to a school I didn't attend. (laughs) I'll be honest, I'm not actually sure how much purpose I serve in this episode. I just kind of let them rip. I do try and impose some structure, so John talked about why he wanted this collection to showcase the weirdness of horror. Josh talks about how we can handle or dismiss tropes. And in Livia, I have finally found the ally I need in the fight to put sex back in horror. (laughs) We also talk about drawing real life into story. We share memories of bad drug trips and it, it all ends on a strangely optimistic note for the human race. So yeah, it's a big one. It does get messy. Bear with us. And join me for a look at the midnight sky. The stars are burning darkly each of them their own entity, but making up a gloriously dreadful constellation. Let's talk scared. Well, hello guys, and welcome to Talking Scared. John, Olivia, this is my first time speaking to you. Josh is basically a co-host by this point. (laughs) But how are you all? How, How are things? Great. Yeah, great. I'm I'm doing well. For the first time in my life, I'm trying to read an entire series. I've never read an entire series of novels before, and I'm reading the Vampire Chronicles, and I'm on... Uh-huh. If you add up the witches and vampires, there's like 18 books, and I'm like 11 books deep. I've never... Wow. The furthest I've ever made it was four and a half books into the Dark Tower. I'm just... It's like a, it's like a <laughs> hole in my reading history. I've uh-huh. never... I've never read an entire series before. Huh. So... I'm going for it. I'm like, I'm, I'm all in. Allison says it's all I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and as evidenced right now. <laughs> How many books in the Dark Tower have you read? So I guess I made it halfway through volume four. The volume four is my favorite Stephen King book after it. Hey, yeah, how, I loved how, it. How, how did you give up halfway through Wizard and Glass? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Because, oh, I think I know why. Because I had read the first, well, I read the one, two, the two before that, and then immediately jumped into that. I just like ran out of gas. But now, and I love the two because it was like a flashback, kind of like the old West again. That's like right. where I left the right. But this time around, I'm not letting that happen. I'm like, no, I know, I know. Hey, I know it's another vampire in Italy, but you got to do it, man. You got to get. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I I haven't read anything. I don't think I finished in- interview, so I can't comment. I mean, I came in a bit combative there, Josh. Sorry, I didn't. That that was a bit harsh <laughs> for the first thirty seconds. Well, I mean, congrats with that. Enjoy it. <laughs> 
Right, this is a slightly new approach to talking scared. Normally, I'm one-on-one. -on -one, so this will be a, a sort of decent test of both my tech capabilities and my hosting <laughs> chops. Uh, trying to talk about the entire landscape of contemporary horror with three experts and keep it from being six hours long. So so let, let's see. Let's see how we go. For, for those who don't know why I've assembled what I'm calling the Horror Avengers. Oh, I like that. There's a new anthology in town, and, and, and the full title is Dark Stars, New Tales of Darkest Horror. Uh, and it brings together some of the biggest, very biggest, brightest voices in the field, including you three. So, John, you're the editor-in-chief, and I think it's only right to start with you. So mm -hmm. can you give us whatever introduction you think is appropriate to this anthology? Yeah, um, I, this goes back maybe, I don't know, what four years ago when Josh and I first started talking about this. Um, we're looking for, for a way to, to do a project together. And I fought back to anthologies that I read when I started reading horror when I was an a early teenager. Um, and the one that leapt out was Kirby McCauley's Dark Forces, which was, I think, not just for me, a seminal book, but I think for the entire horror industry, um, he, you know, Kirby was able to, to bring together a, a real hodgepodge of, of authors, some of whom you wouldn't think of as, as horror authors. And I think the, the point there was to try to, uh, get people to, to see horror as a real literary genre and not some sort of back alley dime store paperback thing um and i think in that he was successful i mean he had authors like isaac bashevis singer and joyce carol oates and whatnot so you know in in looking for that project for josh and i to work together on uh it just seemed to me that nobody had in 40 years since dark forces came out that no one had really gone back to that and revisited that and and uh, it seemed like a good time to pull together not just a tribute to that book, but an expansion of, of the idea of that book to show people what horror is capable of. And, you know, the, the huge number of talented people that are writing horror stories. Um, you know, we were able to pull together a great uh, table of contents of writers um, from all different walks of life with all different points of view for their horror writing. Josh was kind enough to do a, a, a story and the introduction. And in trying to figure out additional ways to tie the book to Dark Forces, I'd invited Ramsey Campbell to do uh, the afterword, you know, not thinking to even ask him for a story. I didn't think, think that was in the cards. But uh, he was kind enough to, to agree to write the afterward and also write a new story. So uh, I think it's quite a collection of 12 stories. I think people are, are going to love it when, they, when you know, it lands on people's doorsteps. Well, I, yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you mentioned that, that list of names. I mean, oh. you, you, you've got you three, obviously. Um, John Langan, Stephen Graham Jones, Gemma Files, Alma Katsu. Also names that I hadn't read before. Like, I, I'd, I'd yet to read anything by... Priya Sharma. Ah. I'd yet to read anything by Usman T. Malik. Mm -hmm. So I think as well as being a who's who of the biggest and and boldest, it, it also platforms some people who are the, the next big thing or, or right now are deserving of 
deserving right, of deserving more attention. More attention. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, and that, that's that's quite a, a concise list of twelve names, but one that that does show the real breadth and diversity of of the field. When you when you were, to stick with you for a second, when when you were putting together the list of intended contributors, were you confident that the names you invited would deliver yeah. that that level of diversity? Oh. You know, the nice thing about where I am in my career is I, I have the ability to work with only people I want to work with. You know, I don't have to don't have to work with people I don't want to. So everybody I invited uh, was somebody whose work I admired uh, and who I thought would fit along well in uh, what we we're trying to produce. And I think, you know, the, the what I got was 100 percent what I was hoping for. Um you know, up up to and including, you know, in addition to Ramsey uh, agreeing to write a story, which I hadn't planned for, um, the original Dark Forces was all short stories. Uh, the end story in Dark Forces was The Mist, with that long developed by King. Um, and, you know, Serendipity or Kismet or whatever you want to call it, uh, John Langan came through with his story, uh enough for hate it's a longer novella so i was able to end just the way that kirby mccauley ended his book with king's longer work i was able to end dark stars here with a longer work from langan so kind of worked out nice yeah i do love that langan story if you like the fisherman um and everyone likes the fisherman then i think that story's got a very similar feel of kind of very that specific Catskill gothic thing he does so well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great and it's grisly. It. I mean, I, I the one thing about Langan's story that that I really liked was if you if you're accustomed to that kind of more literary tone that John has, uh, this story is brutal <laughs> and grisly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, someone does catch a head at one point, which I, I, I <laughs> yeah. appreciated. Yeah. So you mentioned the length of these stories. There's also the freedom from theme. I mean, so many anthologies are themed these days, and this mm-hmm. one is it isn't. So, Josh, Livia, was that expansion and that freedom kind of a blessing or, or a curse? Livia, you want to go first? Oh, sure, sure. I'll go first. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I was waiting for you. I was um, waiting for you. <laughs> We're so polite. Um, I I actually tend to write on the long side, which gets me in a lot of trouble with editors and with markets because, you know, they have very hard limits and, you know, for budget reasons, but also for aesthetic reasons. And um, I'm like, you know, I'm always, I'm one of those twice as much. Why not twice as much? Twice as much blood, twice as much sex, twice as, ma- <laughs> twice as many words. Um, so so when I knew that I could, I could write at exactly the length I wanted, it, um, it meant that I didn't have to go in already thinking about what I was going to have to cut. Mm-hmm. I could just write and write and write. And, and as it turned out, uh, it, it was pretty much, it, it was, it was the perfect environment for me to write the perfect Livia length story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I, I really loved that. I loved that because I don't get that opportunity, uh, very often to just be able to write at the length that I'm most accustomed to. I'm with Livia all the way in terms of like, 
not not only thematically, but like like she's saying, like length. Every I mean, it was just wide open. Like just you, there was a sense from John of um, like, hey, I respect you. Do your thing. And mm-hmm. it was like, all right. And we respect John. And I want and I want to do my thing well for him. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I want to say that without a theme is always. It, it, it's just liberating. You're like, okay, well, I can do anything right now, and it, right. we can go any way we want, right? But sometimes a theme, I guess, maybe kind of helps if there's like, you know, I have a Christmas story, and you're like, ooh, it's, but now, <laughs> now at least I know it's snowing in this story. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that shit helps, but for the most part, this scenario is definitely ideal for me. I, I feel. Um, for us, like gunslingers who are just like, okay, let's, you know, you have a million ideas and you want, you know, let's try this one or that one, or the beauty of just like, Hey, come up with something brand new. And so to me, this setup for this working with John and the setup, the themeless thing is, it was absolutely ideal. Yeah. I, that, I, and that was the goal really. I'm glad you said that because I, you know, themed anthologies are great. Uh, I, you know, I, I think we've probably all been in our fair share room, but to, to do something like this where you just say, come back at me, blow my, blow my socks off with a story. I don't care what it's about. Um, just blow my socks off. And I think to a person, the, you know, the stories I got back from everybody did that. Um, so it was nice to be able to give the authors that freedom to write a little longer and write what's really rattling around in their head. And let me let me say something about this too. In, in general, like so, the first two horror movies I ever saw were Twilight Zone, the movie, and Creepshow. Mm-hmm. And and the Creepshow, you could argue there's a mood, a more unified mood through the um, segments, but still, dramatically different stories, right? The, I mean, from the guy with the cockroaches to uh, uh, Jordy mm-hmm. Barrel in the in the hills or whatever, right? So, and same with Twilight Zone. I mean, so it's always exciting to me when I encounter horror where it's all under the same umbrella, in this case, Dark Stars, edited by John Taft, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But where each story is totally its own world, you almost get the sense of Livia's like, now I'll tell you a story. And then <laughs> John's like, now it's my, I'll, you imagine each one by one stepping up in front of the fireplace or something. Yeah, that's and it's great. Not a, and it's not a unified theme. And there's something super exciting about that. Yet it's still unified. Why? Because it's between the same covers of the same book mm-hmm. and the same thing with Twilight Zone, the movie. It's all of the same piece, the same movie. And I think that umbrella is enough and adds enough sort of a, of a link to that, that the, stra- the stories end up strengthening each other. But you still get the variety of like of each of the different personalities, wildly different as they want to be. Right. Well, you can tell Josh has done this before with me. He segued perfectly into my next question. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> cause I, I was going to say that reading across the whole, th- there is no theme of any kind. I mean, it is a real smorgasbord to perhaps misuse an Americanism. Um, it's a real smorgasbord of, of horror. But there is a, a real slant towards the weird with a capital W. Mm-hmm. As different as your three stories are, they are all highly strange. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. They've got really strange concepts, really strange images. And did you guys notice when you were writing them that these are strange stories? Yeah, I, I, I think for me, both as an editor and as an author, 
I like one of my favorite things is the horror story that doesn't explain itself. That doesn't take up a bunch of words to try to, you know, explain or rationalize what's going on. It just puts it out there and here's what's happening. Deal with it in the story and move on. So as an author, I like that. And as a reader, I like that too, because it it lets the reader's imagination work, which is something I think you always want with horror. You want the reader's imagination to work rather than you as the author spelling out every little thing and, and explaining every little thing that happens. So, you know, there was no way that I could set out to get that as an editor. I certainly didn't ask uh, authors to do that. But what I got in was, <laughs> you know, again, through serendipity or whatever, a, a lot of what I get in was the stuff that I like, which is that that stuff like Livia's story and, and Josh's story that, that don't explain themselves. Here's a door in a basement. Uh, I'm not going to explain to you exactly what's going on, but here's what happened. You know what I mean? Well, Livia, let, let's go to you first, actually, because okay. your your story, Volcano, um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you can elaborate as much as you want on this, but it concerns a pair of, for want of a better word, fabric workers, I suppose, who were tasked with, with reupholstering an entire university campus. Now, now that mm-hmm. that's yeah. strange enough, right? That that could be a novel oh, in itself. I love that. <laughs> no, that that actually happened to me one I summer. I was doing a, a work study, and first they put me in a costume shop in the theater department, and uh-huh. I was a little bitch, and <laughs> I got myself fired because I wanted to be an actress. Ah. You know, um, but, uh, that was my burning passion, and this is based on on the truth, the the the, the all of the job stuff, mm-hmm. and so. I had all these sewing skills. And so I went to the work study department and I was like, what can I do? I need money. I need to pay my rent. And they stuck me in a sub basement with all of these huge machines and me and this other guy who just happened to, (laughs) to know how to do upholstery work. We, we ran those machines. We ran them like all summer long, making absolutely massive curtains that were like 20 feet high by a hundred feet long for dorm room reception areas and reupholstering uh, shitty old couches and sofas in this, you know, a vomit proof material, <laughs> you know, vomit and pee, you know, because it's a campus, it's a university. And that's what, high, that's what higher education is all about. <laughs> so, so that, that actually, there's always something in, my stories that is based on my life. Mm-hmm. And it always cracks me up that there's always some people who are like, no, that did not happen. That's like the only thing I did not believe. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's the one thing that happened. <laughs> well, I mean, from, from the sound of it, you look back on it with real fondness as well. Livia, <laughs> yeah. that's so inspirational to me, what you just said, because uh, after reading your story, I'm like a huge, like, I don't know. I've always had a fantasy of like opening a theater um, Allison, mm-hmm. I love going to the theater. So to have yours open, with, I think, right, yours opens with her getting fired, right? Yes. Or, I guess, or you getting fired. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> uh, and I love that, that just that, that link or that thread to that world. And then, you know, and then the rest, you sewing, as you said, the whole university's stuff. It's inspirational <laughs> because I don't know how often I do what you just said. You just said that most of your stuff is based 
on on your life. And I'm wondering if I should do that more. There's times where I'm like, okay, what's next? And it's, it's yeah. just like this vast, empty, white space where I'm like, all right, let's start making something up, right? And But I like that idea because I've had odd moments like mm-hmm. you know, that all you got to do is add that freaking basement door and the fan in front of it. And then you're like, and now all of a sudden it's like, hey, holy shit, this was this was creepy. I I really, whatever you just said, just kind of like uh, rang a ring a bell with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I draw a lot of stuff into from my life into my books. I, I think that, you know, it gives it a, a layer of uh, realness. You know, that's what I've been missing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny with the sewing because, again, through serendipity, Stephen Graham Jones's story also sewing figures prominently in that. That had not dawned on me. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I noticed one of the things I love about this anthology is the fact that I think the the length uh, allowed everyone to probably put a lot more in their stories than they might normally put. Right. So maybe that's why that extra word weirdness crept in was because they were able to to fill that space with all of the things that they couldn't usually do in sure. 5,000 words. But there's also, um, I noticed as I was reading uh, through each story that there were little things that kind of mirrored other incidents and, and other places and other objects in, in other stories. And, and I loved that. I thought that was great. Well, well your story, Livia definitely benefits from that space. Cause there's a lot of character work mm-hmm. and scene setting before the horror kicks in, but, the, but then the horror does kick in big time. And as we've kind of alluded to, there's this dark hallway and this fan and things go incredibly strange and it reads as almost intentionally inexplicable. And that that's something you follow up on in your story note. You're really reluctant to give any declarative interpretation. Um, can you talk a little about yeah. why and, and maybe about the story in general and, and that, that overall yeah, inexplicability? You know, I am someone who who when I'm reading other people's fiction and I'm when I'm watching Uh, TV or movies. I want the whole fucking story. I want the background. I want to know why the book is, you know, cursed. I want to know who wrote it. I want to know what they were thinking and feeling. I want, I want the movie props so I can go through them and say, I know there's got to be something in here. You know, I, I, I love the, the history of everything. Um, and, uh, Unfortunately, when I'm writing, a lot of times I put too much stuff in. And what I found, though, is that because I'm I'm always devouring other art forms, is that I've come to realize that the art that speaks to me the most is the art in which things are not explained, because then it allows me the space to go in and inhabit that art and to really become a part of it. And, and artists who are able to do that, um, it, they're true, true masters of, of, of their form. Um, and, and this is whether it's theater, uh, whether you're, whether it's acting or whether mm-hmm. it's music or, or visual arts, it's, you have to allow the audience to participate somehow. And if you spell it all out, they don't need to do any work. And, you know, and it does, yes, it does shut some people out, Mm -hmm. but if, 
But on the other hand, maybe they're just shutting themselves out and maybe they're just not the people who need to be seeing and interacting with that art. And so over the years, I've, I've really learned how to know when to not explain and when to just let images be and to to give the reader the opportunity to say, OK, I'm going to pick it up from here. Um, you don't need to explain because I'm going to I'm going to put in my own shit. I agree. It also gives me the opportunity to, if I'm not explaining everything, then that means that the protagonist doesn't know everything. And it's important that they not know everything because then where's the horror, you know? So, so as the author kind of standing over the world, I need to be able to let my protagonist kind of go in blindly Mm -hmm. and not know things because from that state of not knowing, then they make the decisions that that make it horror and, and or not, uh, you know, and bring it to whatever end or conclusion that that the story needs to go to. Well, yeah, I mean, I've read several of your stories over the years in anthologies. They all feel like trying to grab a fistful of water, if if that makes sense to the metaphor. <laughs> um, that actually makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> it goes for thinking, like you know, we all know that 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 horror of the indescribable the indefinable it's we, we kind of casually refer to it as cosmic or or in my opinion yeah the worst term lovecraftian um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i'm not sure we think enough about how we use those terms these days but as, as someone who writes in that register and, and i suppose i think inarguably Volca- volcano is certainly dark star's most cosmic story i think we'd agree Mm-hmm. How do you think, and this is not just you, Liv, it's open to all of you, but how, how do you think that style of horror fits with this contemporary moment? Because it seems to be getting more rather, more popular by the year. I mean, look at what's happening. We are on the precipice of, of not knowing what is going to happen to the planet. Mm. And we have to live, we have to get up every day, and we have to make decisions. And those decisions are some of them push us back and some of us push us forward to the edge. And, and, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not just the war, it's global warming. It's, it's uh, COVID it's everything is, is cosmic and vast in its, mm-hmm. in, in its unknowingness and how, and how little control we have over any of it, even though all we seem to do is try to control it. Mm. <laughs> and, and so, um, I don't think about about what's happening in the world when I'm writing. I, I just write from a very personal place. Um, but uh, I think everyone, I think everyone in their own way knows exactly what that feeling is, no matter where they are in life, you know, or, or how much money they have or, or, you know, what kind of house they live in or, you know, where in the world they are. They, they know they they've all we've all had that that moment of impending vastation where we realize we are not in control and there's nothing we can do. And we're, we can either try or don't try. There's just, but we don't know. We don't know what the outcome will be. So, so I think it's very relevant. Impending vastation with Livia Llewellyn. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah, it's quite an indictment of the era that when you said we don't know about the future of the planet, I generally didn't know whether you meant climate disaster, <laughs> pandemic, or nuclear holocaust. I'm like, I'm not, I don't even know which one we're, we're and, primarily concerned and about my today. My response is 
Yes. <laughs> yes. All of the above. I think this show yeah. is a real testament to the faith in human future because this will go out in like two weeks. Who knows? We won't be here. As I said last week to someone, <laughs> this, this could be heard in a millennia by some alien that lands and picks my laptop from the irradiated wreckage you know, and plays it. <laughs> and we'll be seen as the, the four prophets of the human race. <laughs> exactly. <that. laughs> yeah, we'll be worshipped as ancient gods. So, yes. The mythology that would arise if, if some alien race listened to the back catalogue of this podcast. Wow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely going through this weird kind of mental thing at the minute where like, I, I'm my this podcast is, has turned into kind of free therapy for me where I'm just like here's my open wound heal me <laughs> and um I was thinking today about you know there's all this I don't know what it's like where you guys are but we've got both sides of the press just basically salivating for nuclear war and I'm and, oh. and I'm thinking like it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen every time and again you just think yeah but what if it does <laughs> <laughs> Cosmic horror really does wrap that up in a in a neat little bow that there are that the that word vastation that you know I am just a meat capsule at the at the will of of greater forces than, than my own. Well, I, I you know to me I think cosmic horror um, really plays on that 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 theory of, uh, that uh, horror is a really vastly emotional genre. And uh, the way that the cosmic horror ties into that, for me at least, is that, you know, it reinforces that idea that you better care for each other while you're here, because all that stuff outside of us, outside in the universe, doesn't give a shit. You know, there's no, you know, overarching, caring, supporting uh, God in cosmic horror. It's all stuff that is either, either completely indifferent to us or completely malevolent. So, uh, you know, you better care for the ones you've got here where you're here because everything else doesn't give a shit about mankind. As the resident optimist. (laughs) (laughs) Take it away. What's that? I I would like to toss in the idea that that maybe um, uh, the, the capital W weird nature of most of these stories is because the genre is in a very elastic place. Yeah. Like... Like not not just who's telling the stories, which is obviously wonderfully changed through the years, but the actual like genre itself, what constitutes as horror, this kind of thing. I think that we all would have been really kind of like almost like flummoxed by this book in nineteen. If, if we had read this book when Dark came out, we would have been like, "Did you read that weird fucking book?" You know. Um, <laughs> but now. Now it's completely sensible that a book exactly like this comes out. And not only that, it, it, it's a snapshot or represents, like you were saying, um, well, like we're all saying, that, you know, this is like where we're at or something. And I, and I agree, by the way, Neil, I agree that Cosmic and Lovecraftian, that it's thrown around, it's thrown around too much because it, it suggests, number one, it kind of suggests um, that Lovecraft has like, like, you know, like rules over that rain or reigns over that round, whatever. And, and it's like, no, this is nothing like him, like at all, you know? Right. I mean? And, but I understand why somebody would use those words to describe some of the stories in this book. So, so I, I see it more as like, I see it more as like, we've just, we're, meanwhile, I'm reading nonstop vampire books right now. We've moved on past <laughs> 
like kind of past the straight vampire, the straight werewolf story. And if we're going to tell a werewolf story now, it's probably going to be pretty far out and different. If we're going to tell um, one of those tropes, you know, then it's going to be different or I'm not going to tell any trope at all. And I feel like this, this book is, I want to say devoid of tropes. I mean, I have a witch in mind, but it's, it, it, there is a sense of that elasticity. Absolutely. That modern moment yeah. in time in dark stars. I agree. Well, to come back in with that, a few things. First of all, Josh, all day I was thinking I'm living under the weight of war and pandemic and, you know, all of that stuff. And I thought, what I need is a chat with Josh Malaman. It will sort me right out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and and secondly, yeah, it is trope-free. I mean, Alma Katsu gives us a vampire, but it's, I mean, it's no vampire that I've seen in the last 20 years. I mean, in the review, I think I described it as like, it's a vampire funneled through Clive Barker's sort of psychosexual neuroses. You know, um, it's mm-hmm. a very different take to the aristocratic, well, the, the, the people you're reading about right now in Renaissance Florence. Yeah. So there are tropes, but they're not even necessarily tropes that are being played with in a clever, canny, meta, you know, post-screen mm-hmm. way. They are just different takes on these on these mythologies. And I like that the collection was quite earnest. Um I wrote a thing recently for, mm-hmm. for Nightmare Magazine. This is just a self-plug now. Um, talk about the heart coming back into horror and how, how earnestness in horror has become sort of quite a radical thing after 20 years of mm-hmm. self-interrogation and, and, and metafiction and stuff like that. It, and, and I quite like that these were just, as weird as they are, they are earnest, heart-on-sleeve horror stories. Right. So I think that is much needed. The, life is too... Life is too harsh and too horrible in reality, I think, to treat fictional horror as a as a triviality. It needs to be a place for heart. I agree. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. I feel like I feel like this is this the whole thing is coming therapy for me too. Um, <laughs> I, I that's super interesting to me because it's something that like Alice and I will be watching shows and I'm like, God, everything is like you know either meta or references itself or it's like Easter. Did you notice the Easter eggs in this? And it's like, well, yeah. the point of an Easter egg is that you kind of find it on your own, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, like <laughs> this kind of thing where every, everything seems to be self-reflexive or whatever. And I hadn't quite thought about what, what you just said that um, it's almost refreshing that earnestness that, that, Hey, no, this is just now Livia stands in front of the fireplace and tells us a scary story. Now John gets up and stands in front of the fire, tells us a scary story. There is something like really, not arrested development, although I cherish that. It, it's more yeah. like there's a sense of like, yeah, scare us and nothing more. Mm. And, and, mo- and move us too, move us. I, I don't want it all to be an intellectual exercise. You know, I, I love Daniel Lewis's House of Leaves with an undying affection. Mm-hmm. But, you know, same. He, he did it and he nailed it. And I don't really need anything else like that for the next few years. I, I want to just be right. told a story that moves me. And I think... Without without exception, every story in this book works on an emotional rather than primarily intellectual mm-hmm. level. They're not dumb by any means. They're quite quite highbrow, but yeah, they, they do go for the heart and the throat rather than the, the brain. Um, well, actually, that, that's a good way into yours, Josh, because you know I always think that you are one of the mo- most um, heartwarming horror writers out there. Let, let's talk about <laughs> Mrs. Addison's Nest. Um, if Livia's tale is is nominally cosmic in nature, then how the hell would you describe yours? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, okay. I think back to like the Nightmare on Elm Street, Elm Street movies where like, 
character doesn't think doesn't realize they're dreaming till like a car drives by with like Freddie's sweater pattern on it, you know, paint job. And then you're like, wait a minute. Right. You know, or, or if I'm at like dinner with mom and then all of a sudden there's a, you know, I look to the center, oh, Josh, please pass the bread. And I, I reach and there's a giant hole in the center of the table. Wait, where, <laughs> where am I actually? And that kind of, that, that kind of element of you're up against something that is able to fool you, um, defends itself not by hurting you, not not with nails or teeth or weapons, but with distorting your reality. You don't even know that you're you're near her. You don't you don't even know that you're attacking her. You don't even know that you're close to what you're trying to do. And and that concept to me is like really scary. The idea that like we're gonna go out and hunt her soon, not knowing that we're like we're in her nest right now. That we're 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 standing at the door to her, you know, mm-hmm. her lair right now. And, and that kind of kind, we're all like, hey, let, 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 let's drink and, and cheer and celebrate the hunt we're going to go on tomorrow. Uh, guys, you guys are already on it and you're already deep in it. And that that concept, I, I don't know, it was unsettling enough for me to be like, yeah, this is there's a story in here. Mm-hmm. It's um, it made me think <laughs> this is a really weird comparison. So, so you've got these four friends, you say, on the hunt for this witch, but they don't really understand where they are and what they're doing. And, and time is slipping and reality is slipping. And. It made me think of it being stoned, like, but like really, <laughs> really scarily stoned. And um, it made me think. Yes, I went to Amsterdam for for but for a marathon, uh, me and my wife. And my wife had never taken anything stronger than than a vodka and tonic. And we went to one of the cafes, <laughs> and I said, "Right, let's be really sensible." So we bought one kind of like hash cake, and we did the thing. We took half each. No, we took a quarter each. And we waited an hour. Oh man! Waited an hour. Took a quarter oh, more. I thought, oh, it's nothing. And then all of a sudden, it hit me like a train. <laughs> and I and I just kept slipping in and out of myself. Like I would wake up, and fifty minutes had gone by, and I was on a, a bus going somewhere else. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember running the first ten k of the marathon the next day. <laughs> but but this story feels like that, like a really bad trip. Oh yeah, yeah, man. Listen, I have many stories that, like, <laughs> um, like, oh my god. So, just in a in a nutshell, I had it. I hadn't really thought of it this way, but I I had um a fairly traumatic one on like uh was it was it LSD the one time I took it, and where you know me and my friends we all drove from college to the drummer of my band's house here near where I live, and there was like nine of us from school. His house, his parents were gone. We're all in the house. We all take this drug. We're all excited. Everyone starts laughing hysterically, uncontrollably. The other guys start, they put on this strobe light and they're running around with rubber chickens and all. And all of a sudden I was like, <laughs> I have to get out of this house, you know? And, and everyone else is like <laughs> having the time in their lives, you know? And I go up into Derek's sister's bedroom. It, it's obviously no one else's home. I go in there, I take off all my clothes, curl up on her bed, close the door, blah, blah, blah. There's a light, there's a, a full-size body mirror that at one point I'm standing in front of. And if I look down and like blew on my, my stomach became like a pinwheel, a pin pinwheel. If I blew to the left, my stomach turned that way. If I blew to the right, my stomach turned that way. And I'm like <laughs> losing my mind. I'm like this, like I, I'm, I'm crazy now. I'm gonna have to tell mom I'm crazy. Mom's gonna have to feed me. And mom's gonna have to spoon like soup into my mouth for the next <laughs> years. Derek opens the door, the drummer of my band, turns on the light. I'm naked, curled up in the corner of this room. And he goes, hey man, uh, you okay? And I was like, yeah. 
And he goes, I'll never forget. He goes, oh, okay. I was just worried. And he turns the light off and leaves. What do you mean? Am I okay? Of course I'm not. Look at me right now. So I, I do have a history of like, well, my friends were all like following the Grateful Dead. And I do like that band, but they like love that band in, in terms of tra- traveling with them and they're dancing to them and all this. And I'm the guy that's like, this shit is scaring me. And there's a history there. And I wonder how much of that played, played, not only played into Mrs. Addison's Nest, but gosh, even a lot of stuff I've done. Hmm. Well, I'm going to say, I think, I think we've all got a little bit of insight now into why you wrote a story about an evil psychic pig. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, John, your story is called Swim in the Blood of a Curious Dream. Yes. And that might be the, the, the least strange thing about it. I, I described it recently as, as as pet cemetery meets kramer versus kramer <laughs> i love that this crazy custodial tug of war between parents the trouble being that one of them is right. dead now now th- that obviously is a fantastic conceit but again it is couched in this extreme weirdness you've got random snowstorms a man who can't stop vomiting people who inexplicably know more than they should um mm-hmm. not to not to kind of readdress a question but why did you take such a neat idea (laughs) and wrap it in this oddness and this craziness how does that work as a creative process well you know when i had the idea for the story um there's that you know the whole trope of uh you know divorce being like a death um but i really wanted to i turned it around you know really death is like a divorce too so you know, and, and having been through a bad one that wasn't, you know, pleasant, um, you know, I juggled that idea around. And then we were driving somewhere, my wife and I, uh, not the divorced wife, my current wife, and uh, I, we passed a rest area. And I think anybody that's taken a, a, a driving trip anywhere in the United States, um, you know, knows the, the typical rest area that you, you pull into off a major highway. It's this, you know, lonely squat cinder block building. Um, if you go there, you know, if it's in the middle of the night, when you stop, there's nobody there. It's creepily lit, um, filled with vending machines, questionable bathrooms, that sort of thing. And I just thought that, you know, the idea of, of death being a divorce and divorce being a kind of death and, a a parent who's dealing with that and isolating them. You know, I think horror stories a lot of times work when you isolate the character. Um, so I wanted to isolate them in, in terms of that, that small building and arrest area, but also, you know, weather, I, you know, isolating them in terms of weather. So a, a big snowstorm and then having a, a very small tight cast of, of creepy characters who, as you said, uh, you know, no more than they should. Uh, but I, you know, those two characters that you're referring to, the guy who pukes a lot and the, the woman, um, I, I kind of looked at them as also the, you know, this is sort of a, uh, you're going through a divorce here and you're in a, you're in a court and you've got the opposing counsel and your own lawyer who's trying to help you navigate through this. So I, you know, I don't know what it was. I, I, put all of those ideas into a blender and out came that story. So, uh, uh, but I did, I enjoyed writing it because I didn't, 
you know, I dropped clues, what I hoped were breadcrumbs about what was going on and who was what in the story. But uh, I appreciated the opportunity not to have to explain everything. This episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. This is a question for all three of you. If Dark Stars, as a project, is all about establishing what horror is right now, what it can be, etc., then it's kind of an unavoidably a way of showcasing who you are within that landscape. Mm-hmm. So over to you first, Liv. How did you feel about that? Was there kind of like a pressure to be like, here's a story that is essentially me? Or you know, do you know what I mean? Was there that pressure in some way? I didn't feel any pressure because I kind of feel like I have a very, very small readership. And I, f- <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this to like turn into like, real negativity i'm just being very honest i'm i'm not the kind of writer who is ever going to be able to have like a really big audience and a lot of financial support from publishers in particular the big five for like solo projects because i write about sex and i write about young women and I write about young women having sex and not necessarily with human beings. And that just makes people go <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> so, so I, I didn't, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're saying if I felt like I needed to like perform at a certain mm-hmm. level for, for this type of project. Um, not a certain level, more a sense of like, this is who I am as a writer because I'm put, this is a benchmark collection and, and this is my flag in yeah Holland. yeah no I I felt like what I delivered is exactly who I am as a writer and yeah <laughs> I I'm I'm happy with the piece it's weird a lot of people are not going to like it and that's exactly the reaction I want to get in fact you know it's it's like it's like um if I made a movie called the power of a dog and an actor who thought he was the epitome of, of Western, you know, cowboyism decided that it was the biggest piece of shit that had ever been, you know, produced. My response would be good for you. Good for you, son. <laughs> tell me, tell me how, tell me how it got under your skin. <laughs> cause I, cause it tell me how I live rent free in your head. I'm only peripherally aware of this. We need to have another conversation at a future date, Livia, because I, I've been ranting and raving on this podcast since its inception about the weird um, eradication of sex in contemporary horror. 
Well, in, in, uh, you know, yeah. in cons- we, we live in an incredibly pornographied culture, you know, in which kids have got constant access to Pornhub. You know what I mean? Jesus Christ, I would never have got right. my homework done if I was 15 now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, but, yeah, so we've got this pornography that's, like, ubiquitous, but at the same time, we can't have have, have sex scenes in, in films anymore. There are no sex scenes in horror anymore. And I'm not talking about titillation. I'm talking about... You know, it's part of human. It's a massive part of human experience, but we've stripped it away. Yeah, you're you're talking about um, adults having having adult conversations and 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 talking mm-hmm. about adult subject matter and for for specific reasons and and that's that's actually that's now it's just now considered just as as much of a, a transgression against society and humanity and religion mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as just flat out porn. Um, you know, I, I I remember a lot of the the movies from the the late '60s and the '70s. I love those movies, and they deal with sexuality in in a very frank way. And 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 right. you just you can't do that. You don't do that now. You don't. I mean, I'm thinking of the fiction of like Poppy Z Bright. I mean, this that these days would just be so sort of oh you know, yeah transgressive. I mean, it was then, but these days there's not a chance that would be palatable to most mm-hmm. of the big five at all. You guys should see what I'm reading right now. <laughs> this stuff is insane. I'm like, holy shit, man. No. And this is like a pop novelist. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm guilty of that. You know, I, I've talked to my manager before. I'm like, and I, I but my, I think for me, it's, de- it's definitely no, um, no fear of writing about something sexual. I just, for some reason, my books seem pretty sexless. Like mm-hmm. even Bird Box, Mallory's pregnant, but we, we never even get the name of the guy of the dad. And like, so not only did we not see any sex scene there to, for her to arrive at being pregnant, we don't even need, we don't, I don't know one, we don't know one thing about the dude. Right. And, um, I've talked to my manager about that. I'm like, why are all my books like sexless? And he kind of looks at me in this way that suggests like he knows, but I don't know. And I don't know what that means. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay. I'm not going to ask that again. I'll just have to figure this one out on my own. Cheers. Um, but yeah, Mine have been pretty much like think about Ghoul in the Cape is God the rough drafts eleven hundred pages and there isn't like a single mm-hmm. like, boner in it right. <laughs> well, I got my I got my publishing start my my first couple short stories in a professional sense were published in a, a series of books called Hot Blood, which were a, a series of paperback horror novels back in the nineties, uh, put out by Pocket, and uh, they were erotic horror books. And I think there's like 10 of them or something. And I had stories in two of them. And so a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but a, a good number of my stories from that period are, are sexual or have some some sexual connotation in them. But I, I don't think, like you said, uh, those stories would, uh, those books, that series of books, I don't think they would be published these days. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I simply don't think the public has the, the kind of stomach for that right now for whatever reason yeah in so many as i say and the flip side of that is that our culture is incredibly sexualized and i just don't we it's in a way that to me seems much more damaging but that might be your answer is that it's it's quote unquote taken care of somewhere else you know or something like i I don't know Mm. right you're able to compartmentalize now like no 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 the sex is for Pornhub. the book is for the scary emotional Mm. thing you know (laughs) like you could i don't know maybe maybe that's i've never (laughs) never thought of what you what you're what you've brought up right now but i would love to hear the whole podcast dedicated to it that you're yeah 
Well, indeed. And yeah. I would like to be on that podcast because <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> I guarantee just the name of that will be my biggest listen to, that the downloads will go through the roof, I guarantee. I, also, it always sounds like I've repeated this point so much. It sounds like I'm just kind of this this clarion call for more sex in horror. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's such such <laughs> a vast part of human existence and we just don't acknowledge sure. it. You know, death is fine, murder is fine, the most horrendous violent acts are fine, but even consensual loving sex is is taboo. It's I find it strange. Well, you know, America has always had a problem with sex. You know, oh yeah. You can have the most violent, horrific things ever that succeed. Uh, in an American audience, but just the the merest hint of sex. And there are a lot of people in America that lose their friggin' minds over it. But the British have a very schizophrenic attitude to it. We used to have, we had naked Mm -hmm. women in our, in our tabloid papers, (laughs) but you know, films were censored to hell. It's a strange, strange world that I live in. Um, Moving on, but to keep on on a similar tack, as well as your own, there are myriad great stories in this collection. Um, some from people I've spoken to, John Lang and Gemma Files. Some from people I'm keen to have mm-hmm. on now, you know, Usman, T. Malik, Priyashama. Um, Usman's mm-hmm. story was especially interesting to me as it, it, it brought a kind of non-Western eye to horror. Um, it's a right. story about myth and folk ritual and the residue of colonialism. And, and, and it's the most political story in the anthology, I think. And, and that got me considering mm-hmm. that I'm actually surprised considering that this is kind of, kind of a state of horror anthology, I'm surprised it wasn't more political, more kind of about social issues, because that that focus seems so ripe in culture at the moment. You know, what do you think? You know, I, I, I think, you know, from my perspective at least, um, I think most of the stories didn't take a political tack to them, because I think during the time that we asked everybody to write all this, was you know right as the pandemic was starting to to rear its ugly head and you know i certainly can't speak for all the other authors but i think i think that it might be just because when each of the writers sat down they were fed up with thinking about what was going on in the larger (laughs) world and let's just deal with some other stuff that that is not that doesn't, you know, directly address that. I think there were two stories that hinted at the pandemic. One was mine. The other one was uh, Stephen Graham Jones. But I, you know, I think for the most part, people stayed away from the stuff that was going on in the real world. Uh, and I think it was just because uh, it may have been just because, you know, let's not deal with that. Let's just do some, you know, regular old horror stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. I was glad to see that, frankly. I, I I worried about, you know, having too much of that in the book. Having 12 stories about <laughs> horrible MAGA monsters. <laughs> Just, you know, stuff that was a little too uh, timely and too on the nose. You know what I mean? I think part of it for me, Neil, is that uh, I had, um, yeah, I had, like, just wrapped up, like, the rewrites for Ghoul in the Cave. Mm-hmm. And so... I wouldn't say that that side of me was satisfied, but as you know, that book has a lot of that in there. Yeah. And I, and I think that um, I, I just, you know, I couldn't imagine going from that to another variety or another take or another, you know, 
I had got it out there or something. And obviously we all feel it constantly, everything that's happening. But I think another thing is it, and it kind of ties into your question earlier is like, okay, when you said about like, you're involved in this moment of time, do you feel the pressure of this has to represent you or whatever? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of feel like, yes, my answer to that question is it crossed my mind. What you, what you asked earlier. Yes, it did cross my mind. Like, like, Oh boy, like this is, this is a snapshot of this moment in time. But I'm also aware that a single story isn't going to represent me in full. So I right. think by being involved at all in Dark Stars, it implies that you're part of this moment in time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also in a sort of in a similar um, vein, th- there was something like insulating about that or something where you didn't feel like I have to say, you know, everything that I feel about the world right now, or I have to say everything that I think about horror right now. Or, I have to say that. No, it's just <laughs> It's like I'm in this book and I'm just here to tell yeah. a story. And as you said, to move and to scare and that kind of thing. So I think there was something, maybe it's maybe it's John. Maybe it's uh, John right here, John Taff, who was like, the way he presented to us was sort of this like, move me, tell me a scary mm-hmm. story, rather than maybe a different editor might have been like, hey, can you send me a story about, you know, this mm-hmm. moment in time, how you're feeling right now about the state of the world, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think for me, it's a little different just because of the, the position I have, uh, you know, that I chose to slide up story of my own into the book. <laughs> you know, that kind of did put some pressure on me yeah, to make sure that that wasn't just a, a, a vanity thing, um, that that I had something to say and that that, uh, you know, I'm part of the moment, too. Um, so yeah, that, that, that put a little pressure on me to make sure that I delivered with the story. Yeah. Because I didn't want people to be, you know, and they might, they may very well, even, even though I don't want them to, you know, you know, saying, oh, Dark Star is a great book. That one story from Taft. <laughs> oh no. You know, but you know, you, you have that, you have that, that stress that you put on yourself. At least I did. Well, paradoxically, I'm going to close with the foreword. With a reference <laughs> to that timeliness thing, but not in the way you think, because I'm not <laughs> going to ask about what will horror be like post-COVID, because I'm so bored of just anything to do with it. <laughs> so, um, But, but you know, the timeliness <laughs> of this and COVID and all that looms. And you write beautifully, Josh, mm-hmm. in that foreword about horror being a quite literal community. And you use this metaphor of a group photo probably taken at an event or a horror mm-hmm. con. How much have you missed that stuff as a community? And do you feel like the horror community has weathered the COVID storm? Is it going to come back stronger than ever? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know for sure my plan for StokerCon in um in May, but you can feel that like, hey man, the last two were canceled and you can feel like the energy like pointing mm-hmm. like right now. Right. But you can it, you can just like feel it that like everything's leaning towards Denver right now. And uh, I, yeah, I think obviously we've all missed this like crazy, but I got to admit, like, even me, I'm a total social butterfly. I hope Alice and I host like insane parties at our house <laughs> um, uh, all the time. And we, and you know, we even have like lecturers come here and give like speeches to like audiences and stuff. You know what I mean? Even me with all that in mind, even I'm like a little bit like, oh God, I got to go like see people. I'm a little scared. <laughs> like, like, like there's like some sense of like, who the fuck am I anymore? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I think that we're all okay. We're all feeling that we're all a little nervous. We're all like, I don't know how to move. I don't know how to talk in front of anyone anymore. 
But I think that we all also, we're all just going to, I can just feel it. We're all diving in. We're going to dive in. And I don't think that anybody will have, not only do I not think we have missed a step with that or will have missed a step, but I think it's almost like rejuvenating once ever, once we're back to doing these yeah. things again. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm a bit of a recluse. I'm not a party goer. And, uh, you and live I'm next a, to me, you would be. Yeah, well, uh, but I live out in the middle of nowhere in, you know, Illinois and, you know, uh, the, the chance to get back out and see people in Denver is, is really, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I, you know, I think there really is a strong sense of community in the horror genre and, uh, some of the, you know, some of the best, nicest people I've met. I was hoping to get to Stoker Con. I've never been to a con ever. Um, I'm new at all this this horror community stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't really want to make it this year, sadly. But yeah, hopefully next year for sure. I um, I've spoken to like nearly a hundred people now. I'd like to meet some of them in the flesh at least. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, guys. Well, talking about community, let, let's do our bit to um, promote others whose books we love. Um, I always ask my guests if they would recommend a book for my listeners and and tell us why if we, if we go to you first Livia well the book a book i've read just recently but it was actually a book written many decades ago so <laughs> i i feel kind of weird promoting someone who's <laughs> actually not around anymore um but i i love this book and i i think that it's a book that that more people should be talking about um, it's The House Next Door by Anne River Siddons. And I didn't even know anything about it until a friend of mine just about a, two months ago said, you've got to read this book. And I'm like, she's like, oh, I don't want, I didn't want to say a woman's writer, but she was like, mm-hmm. I was just like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't think about it. And so, so I picked up the Kindle version and I started to read it and I loved it so much. I went out and found a first edition that cost me a pretty penny because it was published in 1978. And it's about a very specific time in America mm-hmm. um, when white upper middle class uh, couples really kind of had control of the culture and and their surroundings and uh this woman and her husband are live next to in this extremely uh, rich neighborhood and have beautiful lives and they're really just they're nice people and it's the kind of lives that i think everyone wants to have where it's just comfort and joy and and lovely friends and beautiful clothing and really nothing is 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 wrong in their lives it's like this beautiful river that just kind of flows along and then someone decides to build a house next door on this empty lot and this house has this presence and it just slowly destroys the neighborhood and their lives. But but I'm not telling you exactly what happens because it's something more than that. But it's just, it's a beautiful character study of, of not just this woman, um, but, but of this very specific time and this very specific neighborhood. And, and I loved it. It was, it was poetic and, and beautiful. And, and horrifying, the horror itself, the, the entity or, or whatever, it, it, that wasn't the horror. It was, it was the way their lives fell apart so easily and how they acted. And I, and I think that 
you know, it, it's odd that it's, it's a not, it's not a book that I think is ever mentioned. Uh, I, I did a little research on it and apparently, uh, uh, Stephen King wrote about it in Dance Macabre, mm-hmm. but beyond that, no one, no one until until this year said anything about it. I did not know this book existed, and and I think it's an amazing horror novel, and I, I think more people should read it. So, oh my God, Livia, I love that book. Oh yay! <laughs> I love that book. So much. And I, I heard about it from a friend also, and I don't really even remember. And then all of a sudden I'm reading it. I didn't even know her. And I'm like, holy shit. When the first few chapters end with the house next door, like that poetic sort of, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and yeah, I'm like, yeah. wow, what, what, this is, this is good. What is this? And by the end of it, I was like, you know, talking Allison's face off. Like this oh, yeah. book is the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> it was just amazing. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I just fangirled over it so much. And just, they're just passages that are just so beautifully written. I just would stop and yeah. read them over and over again. And not just descriptions, but just um, of the protagonist, the main character, Cole Kitt, just what's going on in her head and how she feels as kind of a slightly middle-aged woman of means and, and the kind of woman that you would actually you would think that you would just automatically hate. You just love her. She's just amazing. It, it's it's really beautifully written, and and I think that yeah, I, I think every I think it should be reissued in like a really proper edition that really you know educates people on 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 what it is. I love that book too because yeah. I I just love the fact that it's a brand new house, so there's no reason. For, within the, the logic of horror and, and gothic, there is no reason for the haunting. Uh, it's just, it almost throws into stark relief about what is a haunting and what is a ghost and stuff because there's no history there. Yeah, no, no, there isn't. And and the fact that, uh, that Cole Kitt has such feeling for the woods and and ha- and for for the neighborhood and, and such emotion for it and the, how it really wounds her uh, that that they're building this house and then and then she realizes mm. it's a beautiful house but mm. then she just keeps getting like crushed over and over again not just crushed but just like flayed <laughs> like hellraiser oh. levels of flayed and you know just emotionally and intellectually and and it it's amazing it's amazing i'm gushing <laughs> yeah <laughs> what about you john uh well you know other than ghoul in the cape um wow. which I, w- I won't butter josh up too much by uh discussing that although it was a, it's a fantastic book and i i urge everybody to go out and get it um because it really transcends horror i mean it really is just a great book um the other one that i've read recently that i was really impressed by was uh by an author named john foster john c foster um he wrote a book called Rooster, and I don't read a lot of crime stuff, uh, but I read it, uh, and I, I was really uh, taken aback by how much I really, really liked it. Um, you know, a lot of crime stuff strikes me uh, as very pastiche of, you know, like Raymond Chandler mm. or Dashiell Hammett or people like that, and I think to carve out something new in that genre uh is pretty incredible I, you know there are people doing it left and right but to do it i think is a is a is a feat 
uh, and Foster came up with something that very new and very fresh, and it really immersed me in into the world that he had created. I, I really loved it, and so I would suggest that that anybody who's looking for a new book to read, and if you like that kind of uh, the genre, John's book is is a really good one. Cool. I never heard of that. So or, or him. So I need to track that down. Yeah, he writes horror and he writes horror and okay. crime. Um, so uh, and he's he, an awesome guy. Like, he is. John's a great guy, and his wife Linda Jones is a fantastic audiobook performer. She's uh, narrated uh, some of my work and a lot of other people. Josh, you were saying you've never read a series all the way through. Have you ever read John Connolly's crime horror stuff, the Charlie Parker books? No. Have you read them, John? I have not. I have not written. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I was really into mystery stuff and and that kind of stuff. But uh, that whole genre kind of eluded me. And I'm going back and rereading stuff. Some of the stuff I've, I just got. Just on my desk today, I just got in the mail the uh, Library of America edition of the collected work of Raymond Chandler. And, you know, I've read The Big Sleep and and uh, The Long Goodbye, but I haven't read uh, his other work. So I'm going back and rereading it. I also am getting the Library of America's noir collection and the Dashiell Hammett stuff. So I want to go back and, and read all of that stuff. And, and who knows, I might decide to write a crime novel. Well, that'd point. be good. I always like crime with a horror inflection. But um, yeah, John Connolly is one of my just my favorite authors, full stop. I had him on the show a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. And it was like a life-affirming moment. He um, he writes these these stories about this PI called Charlie Parker. Uh, there's like there's 20 books now, and they're so poetically written. And, and they, they have these grotesque, grandiose villains and this this increasingly arcane mythology that goes from the... It, they go from being gumshoe <laughs> noirs to being pr- next best thing to cosmic horror. Um, with, with, and, okay. and, and like I said, there's 20 of them. He's a lovely guy. He's Irish, but he's writing, it sets it in Maine. And they have that that pithy, uh-huh. witty, Chandler-esque dialogue that makes you laugh out loud one minute. Yeah, right. I can't... I, I don't know about your taste, John, apart from what you've told me, but Josh, I think you would love them. Where, where, where do I start? Which one the, would you well, that You've got to go in order. Um, the first one is called Every Dead Thing. Every Dead Thing. Just incredible that. stuff. Yeah. And and over to you, man. Josh, what 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 would you like to recommend? Are we talking the Vampire Lestat? What, what are you thinking? No, well, actually, I mean, yeah, I... I would, I would like, like I would love for anybody to join on this trip with me. It's holy cow! Is this shit varied and amazing? But the the book that I want to recommend though is actually Kathy Koja's newest. It's um, Dark Factory. Uh-huh. It comes out. I don't like very soon. I think. Um, and I, you know, Kathy lives near me. Yeah, we are friends. We've hung out. She comes to my readings. I go to her immersive like um theater experiences and here she's written a book about like an immersive experience and i I said this in a blurb and i said this on twitter in a different way so i feel weird saying it now but the truth is it truly truly reads with the like buzz and vitality of like a debut novel like this could literally be this could have been written right before the cipher or right after like i mean like seamlessly 
and, and it, it you know it has all the things the hallmarks kathy koja hallmarks of um artists young people punk um but highbrow intelligent well-read characters like mm-hmm. you know like the like shakespeare in the alley kind mm-hmm. of thing right and but it's it's 100 percent I it's bizarre to me, and I don't know why I'm thinking this is so weird. I mean, it's like shouldn't writers get better as the, you know as we age? But like, it, it truly is maybe the best thing she's ever done, and she's done like amazing, like holy shit, genre altering stuff. She asked me to blurb it, and I'm reading it, and I'm I kept saying to Allison like I can't I can't believe this one, I can't believe this one, like huh. the whole time through. And so yes, it has that 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 energy, that like declaration, that like that young, uh, precocious punk spirit. But yeah, with like the skill of like a, a freaking master. And Dark Factory is it, really good. I would never have expected that if somebody was going to say to me, hey, which book would you start with Kathy Koja? I, I never would have expected that I would say like her newest. Huh. And I mean, I guess all of her books are great. So why again, why wouldn't you? And why wouldn't yeah. any of us? But I guess she has set the bar so high for herself um, through her career that I'm just like pleasantly surprised to see that she's still there or something. I don't know. That that all sounds maybe a little weird. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I, from what I understand, there's like, I, I, I kind of went to it, but not really. There's like a website that you can go, like this sort of interactive. There's a Facebook page. And I'm sure that there's going to be like a live reading um, immersive experience for this one. I mean, there is for all. She, she puts on immersive theater shows that that aren't for books at all like for alice in wonderland wuthering heights like she she annually will put on these events that are pretty freaky um you're kind of like once you're in you're in you're not allowed to leave um it's super unsettling <laughs> like imagery and and performers and she did dracula once and you're like at the table with like people but dracula's at the head of the table and no one's like talking and you're like what the hell this is scary um and so she's definitely going to do something for this book, but I don't know what that means. So I would recommend Kathy's newest book. It's as great as anything she's ever done. What you're telling me is I should get Kathy Colder on the show at some point. Oh, oh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This she's uh she's uh, she's as bright as, as as it gets, man. You would absolutely love to talk to her. Yep. Yeah, I shall. I shall. Um, right, quickly, to sum up then, the things that really scare you josh basically there is no need to tell me another thing that scares you i've already asked you twice if you've got something that's fine but don't feel obligated to <laughs> i do i got a new one you got a new one okay well i got it go on what's your new one josh your new fear okay. right because i i we have spoken twice before and i've given i remember the second time i almost said the first one and you were like and you know last time you said this and i was like oh shit i was about to say that again I feel bad for assuming you're this frightened, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I, I recently have been having this recurring nightmare where I'm like um, setting up for something like a show or getting ready to leave the house or whatever. And the entire dream is just setting up. It's never actually making it to the event it's not like I die or something, but it's literally like, let's say it's for a, a show with our band. Okay, my pedal's here. I got to grab the cord. Okay, I got the cord. Well, you got to get that second cord. Oh, yeah, 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 the second cord. Got to get the pedal. Okay, okay, got to get the second cord. Derek needs help with the drum. Okay, but like, we're talking <laughs> for like, but feels like hours. And the crowd is there, or the plane is waiting, or, huh. or Allison is waiting. 
or and this is the the fear the book is waiting like like i'm supposed to be writing and it's this i keep waking up like ah ah and it's like this scary sense of like not getting to it not getting to what i should Mm -hmm. not getting to that peak moment not and again i don't mean by death i mean by either distraction obstruction um uh just too much to do uh like time like mismanagement of time this like horror of not reaching this sort of like peak moment of either a show or writing a novel or or being with allison or taking this trip because i'm so embroiled in some sort of like like daily detail thing earlier that sounds like something that you wouldn't say you're scared of necessarily but because of this dream it's become something of like i've seen it through this nightmare lens of like you will never get to that book josh you have another <laughs> task and another task and another task and it's almost like it's sort of sisyphean or something it's it's uh yeah that that's that's that that's sort of the new new one i've run into i had that before my wedding like legit quite literally logistical nightmares yeah, yeah, logistical nightmare. Yeah, like fretting over admin and things, and like, like, oh, you get you get to wedding. I can't find my speech. I can't find my tie. Where are my trousers? My shoes aren't clean. Exactly that. I think they're a sign of that. They're more they're more mm-hmm. like stress rather than terror. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Well, I hope it gets better, man. Well, I mean, real life has been fine. It's just these strange dreams where it's like, and then it's almost like forcing me when I'm awake to be like, hey, let's get right to it. You know, let's not, let's not, you know, even if you do have some other stuff to do, get right to it, get right to writing or get right to the task at hand. There is a horror in there of, you know, like you have an idea for a book or whatever, the horror, the fear of not getting to it. Oh yeah, exactly. And I have similar dreams. My recurring dream is is being trapped in an airport or a hotel room where you've either just arrived or you're just supposed to leave and you're trying to pack your bags and, you know, you're, you're trying to catch that flight or, you know, you're checking into a hotel and you're, you don't have something that they need. So yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with that. What would your answer be, John, to the question? You know, these days, um, these, what are known as liminal spaces, spaces that, uh, your empty spaces, an empty classroom that, that, should be filled or an empty mall or whatever. There's a whole Twitter feed that's uh, set up with pictures of these liminal spaces. And, you know, for some reason that, that has really captured my attention. I've got a whole book that I wrote called plastic space house that Josh has read that I'm trying to sell right now. Um, That there's something deeply creepy. I think about these uh, empty spaces where, uh, you know, something has just occurred or something's about to occur that whole the whole potential there really really frightens me like you know going back to when i was a a kid and uh unfortunately when i was an altar boy um but you know going into an empty church you know it's completely empty it's completely dark and if if you were catholic uh like i was raised you know all the the statues eyes following you and you know that I, I find that deeply creepy. Oh yeah, that that is man. That's yeah, good one. Yeah, well, I wonder. I'm not to interrupt your like moment here, but I I, no. I follow that Twitter feed also, and I think I might because you liked one of them. Uh huh. Um, and you're right. It's literally just like a like a picture of like a like an indoor pool with no one in it. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Or, exactly. Or, 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 or like the corner of like where the stairs meet, like next to the staircase where the stairs meet the wall or whatever, and you're like. 
why is this so freaking scary? It's not right. a shadow or, or a gothic castle. It's just an empty, as it's you know, or a liminal in this yeah. place. There, there's something about that right now that I just find deeply, deeply unsettling. Um, I wonder if it's something to do with. I mean, I, this is where I'm doing like a bit of a Freudian whip around your brain, but I, I wonder if it's something to do with absence of people. You know, over over the last yeah. two years, we've all been aware of an absence of people because we've been isolating and an absence of people because people are right. dying. And now we've got the possibility of whole scale war. And I wonder if it's the sense of that the world without people in it, in those empty corridors, those empty corners, it's almost like um, a letterbox yeah. view of a world of a post-human world almost, you know? I, you know, with me, I think it's, I think there is that, I think, but I also think with me, there's that whole, you know, light in the refrigerator thing. When you when you close the door, does hmm. the light turn off? What's going on in there? When the when you when you can't see in there, uh, is the food still in there? Are the shelves still in there? Uh, you know, just, just what's going on with those spaces that you leave, um, and you don't you don't perceive them anymore? What's going on? Does does stuff, you know, like the whole idea of a kid with a baby with object permanence? You know, when that baby sees something, it's right there. It's real to them. But when they look away from it, it's not real. They don't they don't have any conception of that. Does that extend outward to everything? You know, when you look away, does it really still exist? That's um... now I've creeped myself. Yeah, that, that is <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in that. It'd probably take an entire show to get to get to the uh the bomb of that, but yeah, that is a it's certainly one of the more conceptual and, and interesting answers I've been given to the question. Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't want to focus too much on this shit, but it is interesting that both John and my answers were um they are kind of pandemic-y. John's is about big open spaces without any people, and mine is not having the time to do something that you want to do, meaning like like not getting to it, like like the event, the con, this kind of thing. And it and it, and it is interesting that those are the two we brought up in, yeah. in this moment in time. Rather than like, I'm scared of spiders or heights, right? <laughs> these are these are like these are more way more existential. Yeah. <laughs> yes, number really. one, way more existential, and number two, they they seem kind of fitting right now. Right. Yeah. We say in the shadow of the mushroom cloud. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it, it'll be fine. I'm convinced it'll be fine. I keep saying it to everyone. I'm just convinced it'll be fine. I am. I am too. I am too. You know, I am too. I mean, I say that I from the too. safety of my spare room. I'm not in downtown Kiev being bombed into pieces <laughs> by a, right. a megalomaniac, and you know, right. and I keep doing these heartfelt kind of overtures to the people of Ukraine who I, I, I just find it unfathomable they're going through this, but. As a species, I think it'll be fine. And if anything, it's, this is this might be a crass thing to say, and I want to tread carefully because I'm not making light of the horror of it, but I feel better about the human race in the last two weeks than I have in the last two years because it's like there's one dickhead causing a lot of trouble and the rest of us have gone, Right, there is a line you cannot cross here. And I think there's a... Right, I, I know what you mean by that, yeah. There is a decency that's been highlighted that hadn't been highlighted for a long time. Yeah, right. And I think as a species, we always seem to pull it out at the last yeah. minute. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. or how, but we always seem to just step back right as we're ready to fall into the precipice. But it also, it shouldn't... I mean, obviously you both agree with this. It shouldn't take a fucking horror story and, right. to bring everyone together, but... And, and, and let that be a lesson too. Um, 
that, you know, the next time things aren't like this, or I guess there's always something, right? But the next time things aren't like this, to like still have that decency, to still have yeah. that um, care for each other, to still have that heart. Like you don't need, the world doesn't have to be on fire for you to all of a sudden care about the world. Exactly. But as you said, Neil, it is nice. There is something there that it's like, okay, everyone is reacting the same to this. And there is something to that. So there you go. That's a set of people who think up the worst shit imaginable telling you it will be okay. So you can take that <laughs> to the bank, listeners. Um, guys, listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a blast. It's been a lot more laid back than these interviews normally are. And and, and that's because of, well, you guys, not me. So, yeah, thank you so much. And everyone read Dark Stars. There is literally something for everyone in there um yeah yes. all right guys thanks for talking scared well thank you that was great that was truly great hanging with you and talking love that a few things before we go any further first of all there's been a delay to publication so rather than the original date of 22nd March, Dark Stars won't hit shelves until May 10th. I believe there's been some last minute printing issues and the publishers asked me to delay this episode until nearer the time. But unfortunately, the schedule had been set in stone already. So on the good side, you can hear about this early and you can build up some saliva to read the book in May. Unfortunately, on the bad side, you've got to salivate until May. Because I know you all want to read this one. Like I say, it is a benchmark and it really does have something for everyone. John Langan's Wendigo Tale is a classic. Priya Sharma's weird little folk horror is brilliantly unsettling. And Stephen Graham Jones's incredibly dark psychological horror story is... Well, just awful, but in a good way. Yeah, plus there's a lot more in there. Second point. I should have explained in the intro, but Livia had to leave before the end of the interview. She was recording the, the entire thing from her desk at work, and she got called away by her manager. So we never found out what truly scares her, which is all the more reason to have her back on the show, perhaps for that sex in horror episode that we briefly talked about. And do let me know if any of you lot really want to hear a round table on that topic, because if you do, I am game and I can get the authors. But yeah, be warned. <laughs> and, and actually, on that topic, my apologies. I know that I've banged on about this issue of sex in horror a bit too frequently. And I am aware when I rehash themes on this show... It's just that these are very real conversations for me in the moment. When I'm having them, things I care about and things I think about just come up organically. And I then think later, hmm, maybe the listeners are sick of this topic. But if it's interesting, I kind of get swept away by the conversation. And then when it comes to editing, it always just seems too good content to cut out. Yeah, basically, in future, I'll try not to hammer my why is horror so sexless drum for a while. But it is a fascinating issue. Oh, and when I mention porn being damaging, that's not me being a prude. I know that for the vast majority of people it's not. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm not leaping on a chair going, Thomas, Thomas, 
Considering how much time I spend arguing against the idea that a love for horror indicates depravity, I'd be a hypocrite to start criticising fans of erotica. It's just interesting that hardcore, often violent sex has become readily available online just at the same time that it's receded from pop culture. Yeah, fascinates me. Equally, another rehash theme, I narrowly avoided another meandering rant about the importance of horror with heart. I mean, by now you all know where I stand on that topic, and and it will come up again, I can't deny it. I did catch myself in this episode saying that horror shouldn't and mustn't be trivial, that it has a purpose to be more than that in such times of dark reality. I'd like to caveat that a little. Trivial and fun are not the same thing, and horror can absolutely be fun. I'm a lover of pulp. Go and read James Herbert. Go and read Sean Hudson. If you've got to, go and read Dean Koontz. Even Grady Hendrix, you know, one of the totems of contemporary horror, even he privileges fun over pretty much everything else. And for God's sake these days, have fun with your reading. I am not the horror police. There's no gatekeeping here. Read what the fuck you want. And that's a promise I'm actually making myself at the moment because more and more frequently I'm finding myself admiring but not actively enjoying books in the way that I used to. And that's no reflection on the story or the writing for the most part. It's just a consequence of reading so much and so quickly for this show. I need to carve out some time to actually be a reader again and not just someone with one and a half eyes on the upcoming interview. Now, you can help with that by supporting this show. The the better the show gets, the bigger it gets, ideally the more time I have to devote to it. Now, reviews are essential and they've dropped off recently. So if you can, please review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever or share on social media. Mention the show in your Reddit board. Someone did that a while back. Listenership went boom. You know, whatever you do, the more that people know about this and me, the easier my life is. And if you want to support financially, and you don't have to, for God's sake, if you want to, and you can get some excellent bonus content, you can join Talking Scared Patreon. Use the link in the show notes, or or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. For a few dollars or a few quid a month, you can get the whole back catalogue of bonus episodes and extra chat with the authors about more freewheeling stuff. Um, Yeah. A big thanks to recent subscribers, Mike McQuillian, Bruce Cowie and Vorp. Great nickname, that one. I really appreciate the support, guys, and I hope you love the bonus stuff coming your way. Let's just say, spooky vanishings aplenty. Otherwise, that's me done this week. It's been a mega edit on this one and I'm tired. We haven't been blown to dust yet, so I'm off on a drunken spree with old, old friends this weekend. I will see you all on the far side of that, alongside next week's guest, who is Emma Stonex. Her novel, The Lamplighters, adapts one of the most fascinating mysteries I've ever encountered. Just search the Flannan Isle Lightkeepers in preparation for that chat. Trust me, you'll be hooked. Until then, keep it weird, keep it sexy, and if you're going to do drugs, do them safely. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.